So John chapter 10, uh, beginning from verse 1 through to 21. This is God's word. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is God's word. Father, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word now and give us eyes to see and ears to hear the beauty and majesty of Christ our Saviour. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, last week we began the, the Good Shepherd discourse, which is connected to chapter 9. And as Jesus introduces uh, himself, he's revealing himself as the shepherd of the sheep. He's using metaphorical language, a figure of speech, uh, to reveal something about uh, who he is and why he has come. And the first aspect uh, we looked at last week was this idea of what the Good Shepherd has come to do, which is to call his sheep out of whatever fold they're in to come to himself to have life in him. And this is the first aspect of redemption that is being revealed here. Redemption being quite simply the, the act of taking possession of something uh, that has been purchased. We have been purchased by the blood of Christ. Christ comes to take possession of that which he has purchased by his blood. So the first aspect we looked at last week is this aspect of redemption, where Christ calls his sheep to himself. And now we have another aspect. We have the second aspect of this redemption, which is that the shepherd must lay down his life for the sheep. 
the shepherd must sacrifice himself for the sheep. And this is the question that I want to dwell on today, mostly. Why would a shepherd lay down his life for sheep? This is the, the language that Jesus uses. A man, a shepherd sacrifices himself for sheep. Now, we live in a world where uh, we might say there is almost an insultingly high level of dignity given to animals in this world, where dogs are literally given the title of fur babies so that they're actually treated like human babies, uh, given an outrageous level of dignity. I would say even in this environment, it is a remarkable thing if a human being was to sacrifice themselves for an animal. That's that's remarkable. That's outrageous almost. And this is part of the point that is being revealed here. Jesus makes a remarkable claim saying he is the shepherd, lays down his life for sheep. It's incredible. That's what we're going to dwell on here. To get the background of this, let's, let's just begin from verse 11. Jesus introduces himself as, I am the good shepherd. Now, this is one of the seven I am statements in John. He's already used one in this passage where earlier on Jesus said, uh, I am the door. That is, I am the only way to the Father. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You cannot come to the Father except through me. That's what he's saying. You cannot circumvent Jesus. There is only one way to God. That is through Jesus Christ. He is the door. Now he gives the second I am in this passage. I am the good shepherd. The idea is that of the the noble or excellent shepherd. Even the true shepherd is really what's being revealed here. Jesus is revealing himself as the true shepherd of the sheep. And the sheep that are in picture here have been, have succumbed to heavy handed, uh, selfish and neglectful shepherding. They're not being cared for as sheep ought to be. So this is the backdrop for the good shepherd to reveal himself. He reveals himself in the midst of these false shepherds, these worthless shepherds who have no concern for the sheep. They have selfish desires and as such the sheep suffer because of that. Jesus has already described thieves and robbers back in our passage last week in verses 1 to 10. Thieves and robbers who harm the sheep rather than care for them. But now he describes a different type of person. So in verses 12 and 13, he describes this this hired hand. It's just uh, simply an employee, a worker for wages. That's the idea here. And this hired hand is clearly not someone who feels any sense of ownership over the sheep. So notice what Jesus says here. The hired hand, when he sees the wolf coming, he leaves the sheep. He flees. Because he's not invested in the sheep. He's invested in getting a paycheck. The moment the cost outweighs the benefit, he's always going to preserve himself. It's just like the difference between a casual worker and a business owner. The casual worker in a business simply clocks in and out. They do the bare minimum. They're there to get their paycheck. Uh, They're not going to do duties that seem beyond them. They're going to do the bare minimum. So as a result, certain duties get neglected. Things get overlooked. Now you contrast that to the business owner 
whose livelihood is attached to the business. The business is a reflection of himself. So he is very invested in the business. So he picks up the little bit of rubbish on the floor, even though it's not his duty. He cares for his employees, even outside of hours, because his employees have necessarily become a part of his family because the business is so intimately connected with him. And this is the idea here, the contrast between the hired hand, who is simply a casual worker, who has no investment in the sheep, and then Jesus revealing himself as the shepherd who owns the sheep, who is so intimately tied to the sheep. The hired hands, however, simply flee. The moment the cost outweighs the benefit, they preserve themselves and they leave the sheep up to slaughter. And the point here isn't so much to identify exactly who the hired hand is, but here's the point of this. We're meant to be seeing this hired hand, this sort of casual worker versus business owner uh, contrast as the backdrop for Jesus to reveal himself as the good shepherd. In contrast to thieves and robbers who deceive people and who harm the sheep, and in contrast to hired hands who flee when danger comes, Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. And just think about the weight of this claim. Jesus is revealing himself as someone who says, I'm willing to lay down my life for sheep. He says it five times in this passage that he lays down his life. Now, this is a shepherd, a man who is willing to sacrifice himself for sheep. Now, I haven't actually come across a lot of shepherds in the modern day, but I find it highly unlikely that a, a, a literal shepherd would actually sacrifice themselves for sheep. Sure, they care for the sheep and they're worth money, but the price of human life outweighs that of sheep. So I find it highly unlikely that a shepherd is actually going to lay down his life for sheep. Yet Jesus here tells us that he is the good shepherd who willingly sacrifices himself. He lays down his life for the sheep. Now, if you look at this in purely natural terms, you can understand the reaction of the people in verse 20, where in verse 20, they say, this man is insane. He's delusional. He has a demon. Only an insane person uh, as a shepherd lays down his life for sheep. So why in the world would a shepherd lay down his life for sheep? And the point, of course, is in the value of the sheep. The sheep actually are valuable, but we must understand where the value comes from. And this is what I want to dwell on today, where the value of the sheep comes from. From The value of the sheep is an ascribed value. That is to say that they have a value that has nothing to do with themselves. It's not an inherent value. It's a value that is attributed to them, that is given to them because of someone outside of themselves. So, for example, there were a, a pair of sneakers that sold for $550,000. That's outrageous. And these sneakers, it wasn't even like these sneakers were gold-plated or that they had... Uh, springs that shot you 20 meters in there. They were just normal basketball shoes. But the reason why they were worth, I mean, there's no, there's no um, sane reason why they're worth this amount of money. But the reason in this scenario is that they were worth over half a million dollars is because they once belonged to Michael Jordan. That's the reason why they were supposedly worth almost $600,000. 
purely because of who owned the shoes. Now, the value that the sheep have here is an immeasurable value. It's an uncalculable value because of who owns the sheep, because of who they belong to. Notice in verse 14, Jesus very clearly says, I know my own, my own know me. This is about ownership. This is about who the sheep belong to. And this value is not simply to do with the inherent value that all human beings have. Sure, we can say that every human being has dignity, value, and respect because they are made in the image of God. That's why we care about all human life. But that's not the value that's being talked about here. This value is something deeper than that. It's a value that has to do with the redemption, a redemptive value that the good shepherd has come to fulfill. This value here reveals the fact that these sheep are those whom were elected to salvation from before the foundation of the world. And Jesus, as the Son of God, is coming to claim what is rightfully His. That's what's going on here. Remember the background to this. Think all the way back when we went through John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6, Jesus puts it very clear when in verses 37 to 39, He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And I will never cast them out. He goes on to say, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. Now, who is it that the father has given to the son? Jesus keeps talking about those whom the father has given to me. Well, that is the sheep who belong to Christ. The sheep who in verse three of our passage, Jesus calls by name. He calls out his own sheep by each individual name. And he calls them by name because as John, the same author here in his book in Revelation, three separate times refers to those whose names were written in the book of life from when? Before the foundation of the world. There were names written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. Or in Ephesians 1. Paul, very clearly, he talks about the redemption that we have. And he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So the sheep that Christ is willing to sacrifice himself for, are those whom the Father, Son, and Spirit had covenanted to save from before the world began. And this is where the value comes from. This is the background to verse 14 here, when Jesus talks about this knowledge. He knows the sheep eternally and intimately because they were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. This is the knowledge that He has of the sheep. And look at this in verse 15. In verse 15, Jesus grounds the knowledge that he has with the sheep in the very knowledge that the father has with the son. He says the sheep know the shepherd just as. That's the idea of in the same way that the father knows the son 
and the Son knows the Father. That is the relationship that we have with Christ is grounded in the relationship that the Father has with the Son. That's what's going on here. That's why Jesus connects these two with the eternal relationship between Father and Son and says, the sheep know me just as. The Father knows the Son because the knowledge that Christ has for his sheep is one that stretches all the way back into eternity past where names were written in the book of life and the Father, Son and Spirit agreed in perfect unity that they would save every single one of those sheep. Jesus would not lose a single one, but he would accomplish redemption so that none would be lost. This is the intimate knowledge that Jesus has. And this is where the value of the sheep lies. The fact that the sheep were foreknown before the foundation of the world. And as Paul says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Moreover, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified, which is basically the golden chain of redemption saying, whom God foreknew, Because of this covenant of redemption, because of this redemptive promise, Jesus as the good shepherd would make sure that every single one who was foreknown would be on an unstoppable trajectory all the way to glory. And it would have nothing to do with ourselves, but everything to do with Christ and his power as the good shepherd. This is the inner workings of God's marvelous plan of redemption. It's very deep, but it's worthy of swimming in for the rest of our lives to understand this. The Father has given a people to the Son so that the Son would then come to those people and wash them clean by His blood and present them back to the Father as holy, blameless, and above reproach. That's what Christ is accomplishing. And here is where we can relish I mean, we can rejoice and even boast in the fact that Christ will pursue every one of his sheep. Each individual sheep is of immense value. Every individual sheep is of immense value. And we can hold to this with absolutely no self-centeredness because there is a great danger in our society of holding to this in a very selfish way of thinking, yes, of course, sheep are valuable. Of course, each individual sheep are valuable. Of course, I'm valuable as a sheep. Don't you know me? I'm really a great person. Of course, the shepherd would want to uh, seek me out. Sure, I have my problems. Sure, I'm a silly sheep at times that wanders astray. But really, I have a lot to offer. I have a good heart. And that's why the shepherd comes to me. Well, that's absolute nonsense. It's the most unbiblical idea. We are sheep that have gone astray. We are hostile in our minds to God. We have nothing that we're bringing to the table. Often we hear stories like Jesus leaving the 99 sheep to come after the one. And we uh, look at that through self-centered lenses as though we're worthy of being saved. And it's very easy in this selfish society Uh, that we're all a product of, to hear that through self-centered lenses. For those who who maybe are unfamiliar or need refreshment, the the story I'm referring to of Jesus leaving the 99 and following the one is where he tells the parable of the lost sheep to some scribes and Pharisees. And he says to them, what man among you, if you had a hundred sheep and you lost one, would you not leave the 99 in the open country? 
and go and find the one. And then he says, when you find that one, you would throw that lamb on your shoulders and you would rejoice. And then you would tell everyone, hey, let's have a party. I've found the sheep. Now, in purely natural terms, that's crazy. You would, I mean, in natural terms, you, you don't leave the 99 sheep in the open country. The point of that is sheep in the open country without a shepherd are going to get slaughtered. They're going to get lost. They need a shepherd. You can't leave them in the open country. But the point of that parable is Jesus highlighting something that that one sheep, that one sheep is worthy of pursuing in that way. Why is that one sheep worthy of pursuing? Because that one sheep is one of the sheep that the father has given to the son and the son has promised to seek and save every single one of his sheep. If he did not pursue every one of his sheep, he would not be fully accepting the gift that the father has given to him. He would not be fully accomplishing this redemptive plan that he had agreed to. And when you understand the immense value of each individual sheep, through that God-centered lens rather than a self-centered lens, then you can genuinely relish in the fact that Christ will stop at nothing to redeem you. That's the beautiful reality. Christ will stop at nothing to redeem every single one of his sheep. And he's not pursuing us because we're special just because of who we are. That's not why he's pursuing us. We're, We're a sheep that wandered astray, that deserted him. He is pursuing us because Christ will not lose a single one that belongs to him. He owns the sheep. He will cross land and sea, so to speak, to pursue every one of his sheep. So he is willing to lay down his life for the sheep. He is willing to condescend from the mountain peak of equality with the father in order to lower himself all the way down into the the valley of humiliation to seek and save every single one of his sheep to become the lamb who is led to the slaughter. And so for us who have heard the good shepherd's voice, we, as Peter says, were straying like sheep, but now we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. We've returned to the place where we ought to be in his flock, in his fold, under the good shepherd. Now, this is why the good shepherd lays down his life, to redeem those who eternally belong to him, to redeem those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, let's briefly look at two other aspects of redemption that are revealed here in this passage. That is the willingness of the son to lay down his life. And then secondly, the scope of redemption. So I want to just come back to verse 16 after. Let's look at verse 17 and 18 here. Here's where we see the willingness of the son to lay down his life. Jesus is the good shepherd. It's very clearly said he lays down his life for the sheep. And what is of absolute clarity is that he does this completely willingly. There is no compulsion outside of himself to lay down his life. He's very clear to say, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Now, the test of someone's genuineness in leadership is often whether uh, they will continue on the trajectory of their leadership, even in the face of personal loss. And a, a great leader will care for his people, even if it costs them tremendous 
loss. We've seen that the hired hands do not do that. Whereas Jesus as the good shepherd is revealing himself here as the one who is willing to suffer great loss for his people. The good shepherd willingly condescends into unimaginable affliction for the sheep. So Jesus says in verse 17, for this reason, the father loves me. Now, let me just cover that very quickly here. This is not saying that the love that the father has for the son is contingent upon the fact that uh, the son lays down his life. What this is revealing is that this is a love that has eternally existed between the father and son. The willing submission of the son to the father's will is an expression of the love that has existed before the foundation of the world. The love that has always been there. The very fact that Jesus willingly lays down his life with no compulsion by anything outside of himself is what makes this love so incredible. Think about this at any point. At any point, as Jesus is walking on earth, he could have preserved his life. He could have totally preserved his life and chosen not to. Jesus says in verse 18, he has authority over his life. God could have remained just in simply punishing all sinners rather than sending his son to voluntarily lay down his life. So Jesus, rather than preserving his life, he lays it down of his own accord. Though he is the lion from the tribe of Judah, he reveals himself as the lamb led to the slaughter, the helpless lamb who is taken outside of the gates like a petty criminal to suffer the death of one who seems cursed by God. And notice Jesus says in verse 17, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. This is a conditional or a purpose statement, rather. Jesus saying, the reason I lay down my life is so that I may take it up again. Of course, Jesus's death was never an accident. Of course, there was never any uncertainty about what was going to happen. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He was going to lay down his life so that he would take it up again. He lays down his life so that it may be revealed that he is the one who has power over life and death. He lays down his life so that it may be revealed that he is in perfect control. And what comfort there is for us, if I can just give an application for us now in light of what Jesus says here, in the midst of whatever grief or struggle or affliction we are in, in this world, which we will face many of, it's easy to miss the reality of God's complete control over circumstances to work them for our good and his glory. Think about how the disciples would have felt on the Saturday after the crucifixion, Jesus is crucified on a, on a Friday. Think about the way the disciples would have felt on a Saturday. Sunday hasn't come yet. Jesus hasn't risen. Their promised teacher, their promised Messiah, humiliated, dead, their hopes shattered. They're hiding out. They're isolated now. And if only they had remembered Jesus' words here where he says, I lay down my life so that 
I may take it up again. This was always the plan that he may take it up again. And the beautiful comfort for us is that we, of course, have that perspective. We're not looking at our circumstances from Saturday's perspective as though we're unsure of what's going to happen in the future. No, we look from Sunday's perspective, which is to say we know Jesus rose from the dead. We know that it's not Saturday. We know that the tomb was empty, that he rose from the dead. And so the same Jesus who has authority over his life to take it up, uh, to lay it down and take it up again, is the same risen Christ who has all authority in heaven and on earth and who has all authority over every circumstance in our life so that we know whatever is happening, there is authority from the Most High to raise that up in some mysterious and beautiful way for our good and His glory. We don't know when exactly we will see that, but one thing is for sure, we know that He has not lost control and we have beautiful promises that say that He is working everything together for our good and His glory. So Jesus willingly lays down His life so that He may take it up again and what comfort we can have in that, recognizing our own circumstances. The same Jesus reigns over every single circumstance in this life. The second and last uh, perspective I want to look at here is the scope of redemption. So notice in verse 16, Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Now, this is, of course, in a a Jewish context. We have to travel uh, a a fair way back to understand the Jewish context. Uh, You and I, if we're not a Jew, we are a Gentile. uh, uh, If we had been living over 2,000 years ago, would have been considered unclean by Jewish standards. Gentiles were not allowed in uh, the temple. There was a court of the Gentiles, which was the outermost limit. There was a court for women, for Jewish women, uh, which this is in a society where women did not have uh, the same entitlements to head into the temple. And even then, Gentile men were never going to get as close as Jewish women into that. So all Gentiles were considered unclean, unable to fully enter into Jewish society. And so imagine that you were living in this context, in relative proximity to Israel, believing in Yahweh, the God of Israel, but knowing that you were always going to be considered unclean, you were sure that you would remain a second-class believer at best because you were not ethnically Jewish. And then think about this moment where the mystery of the gospel is being revealed. The mystery of the gospel, it's made known that the redemption that Jesus the Messiah has come to bring was not only to ethnic Jews, but it was going to go out to a people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. This is an outstanding Reality. There would not be separate flocks of ethnicities. There would be one flock, one body. This is the incredible nature of God's cosmic scope of redemption that is going to stretch out far beyond the Jewish people to every single tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Why? Because the lamb who was slain has purchased a people, as it says in Revelation 5, 9, purchased a people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. If we had time, it would be wonderful to look at Ephesians 2, where Paul makes this 
clear in Ephesians 2 when he says, we who were once far off, that is you and I, Gentiles, who were once far off, uh, strangers of Israel, uh, not partakers of the promise, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, we who were far off, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He says, in Christ, he has abolished that which separated Jew and Gentile. The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. Why does Paul say this? So that he might create in himself, that is in Christ, one new man in place of the two, so making peace. That's the idea here. In Christ, Jew and Gentile, though Jews remain Jews, Gentiles remain Gentiles, in Christ, they become one with one shepherd. And that flock is made of those purchased from every tongue, tribe, and nation. This is the cosmic scope of God's redemption. Now, if I can just finish with two very brief applications. One is very linked to what we have just seen in the cosmic scope of God's redemption. This is to do with our evangelistic task. The voice of the good shepherd must be heard by every tribe, language, people, and nation. The voice of the good shepherd must be heard by every tribe, language, people, and nation. It's easy to uh, take the wrong uh, route in listening to all that we have heard about uh, God's uh, redemptive plan where he had purchased the people from before the foundation of the world. We had, he had elected them to salvation and wrongly think, well, great, we don't have to do anything. That's, of course, the wrong understanding of that. It's a complete misunderstanding. Rather, the right understanding of that is to realize that it is our duty to make Christ known to those who are not yet in the flock. It is our duty to make the voice of the good shepherd known to every, tri uh, every tongue, tribe, people, language, and nation. This is the privilege of the church as the body of Christ, to spread the fame of the good shepherd to people who are far off. This is the beautiful privilege that we have and the responsibility that we must undertake. We need to call a people who are far off to come near by the blood of the Lamb. And we do this whether they are in the slums of Tuggeranong or northern Afghanistan. We desire to make the voice of Christ known, to make the fame of the Good Shepherd known throughout the whole world. This is something that we as a local church must continue to think about, continuing this redemptive plan. This is the duty that Christ has given to His church as He remains with them to make His voice known throughout the world. And we do this with great confidence because we know that there are those out there whom Christ has purchased. We know Jesus assures us that not a single one of his sheep will lost, and so the right will be lost. So the right response to this is like what Paul says when he says, "I endure all things for the sake of the elect." Because the elect are out there, because there are a people whom Christ has purchased, I'm willing to endure all things to make sure that Christ is known among all people groups. And as the true church continues to faithfully proclaim Christ, this voice of the good shepherd goes out 
And it is calling his own sheep by name. This is the mystery of uh, proclaiming the gospel through the body of Christ, that it goes out as a, a net spread far and wide. And there are those who hear the voice. And it is as though the voice is calling them by name to come to me and be saved. So we must continue to be about the evangelistic task of making Christ known to every tribe, tongue, language, and people. Second and last application. As we think about good shepherds in the context of the local church, under shepherds, that is pastors Tobias and I, uh, elders, pastors, overseers, under shepherds are called to model the love of the good shepherd. And so this is a both, both an application to people like Tobias and myself, and then also to the congregation as to what you ought to expect of pastors, elders, and overseers. Pastors are to be a, a middle ground between hired hands and the good shepherd. We are not the good shepherd because we do not own the sheep. We do not own any of you. I am a sheep. I am owned by the good shepherd. But Tobias and I ought not to be like hired hands in that we must not be self-seeking. We must not desert the sheep at the threat of danger. We are to model the sacrificial love that the good shepherd reveals to us here. This is the, the call and duty to pastors in local churches, amongst other things, to model the sacrificial love that the good shepherd reveals here, the kind of sacrificial love that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy had when they wrote to the Thessalonians, and they said that, that uh, they were so affectionately desirous of the Thessalonian church that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy were willing to share not only the gospel of God, but their very selves. They were an open display to them. Or I, I was reflecting upon this last week of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, where he says to the Corinthian church, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. That is a faithful undershepherd. Listen to what Paul is saying. He writes them out of much affliction. And anguish of heart, that's anxiety of heart. He is full of anxiety over the Corinthian church. He's torn up inside. He's weeping. He has many tears as he's writing to them because of his abundant love that he has for them. This is a faithful shepherd. This is very convicting for me as I am preaching this. But as faithful under-shepherds, care for the flock in this way, the rest of the flock, all of you ought to be working toward that same love. So please don't be hearing this and thinking, I'm glad that's not me. We all need to be reflecting this love. This is the command of our good shepherd that we will get to in John 13. What does he say in the end of John 13? A new commandment I give to you, to the disciples, that you love one another just as I have loved you. How has Christ loved? Well, we've just seen. He lays down his life. He lays down his life for the sheep. And then Jesus says, hey, I want you to love one another in the same way that I loved you. 
Now that's in the context of him serving them that we'll see in John 13, but we see the way he serves is by taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the death of the cross. And so the love of the good shepherd should not dry up when it comes to us. Rather, the love of the good shepherd in the context of the local church should flow like a a rapid or a stream of river down to every single member of the church. The source of this never-ending stream. The love of God should be a never-ending stream through the church and the source of this stream. The source that we must always come back to is meditation upon the love of God that we see in Jesus Christ. Contemplating deeply how the Father's love has been seen in Him sending His Son and the Son's willing submission, the Son's willing sacrifice to lay down His life for sheep, for you and I, we who were straying sheep, we who were rebelling against the Good Shepherd, and yet He comes and He pursues us relentlessly in order that He may take possession of all that belong to Him. And so he suffers a humiliating and excruciating death in order to take our sin upon himself. That as he calls us as his own, he may call us knowing that he can wash us with his blood, make us pure and clean and look forward to the day where he will then present us back to the Father as holy, blameless and above reproach.